Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Charm offensive from Beijing is probably surface level. It doesn't speak to genuine warmth within the Chinese system of government. Chinese Premier Li Kuang referred to Anthony Albanese today as a handsome boy. At least it sounds like the relationship between Australia and China is becoming much more friendly. Also coming up on the program... To get your work done in less time, it actually requires that not just the individual, but everyone in the organisation actually changes how they're working. There has been a lot of discussion recently on moving to a four-day work week. Sounds great for those long weekends, but can you really get the same amount of work done in four days? World consumer goods giant Unilever is doing just that and more. So stay tuned to The Wire to find out how. The latest treatment and access to treatment has been highlighted as one of the major issues at the Senate inquiry into assessment and support services for people with ADHD has released in their report this week. Recommendations address the process of identifying behaviour in line with ADHD symptoms, properly diagnosing ADHD and then efficiently treating the syndrome. Stephen Samaras asked Dr Kariupa Jagadijian, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists Chair of their ADHD committee, to explain his role in the Senate inquiry. Yes, uh, we, we were asked to prepare a written response to certain questions asked by the committee, the Senate committee, and uh, we provided that. And I also attended the inquiry on the 26th of September to express our views as the college and uh, particularly our views as the ADHD network. Did they tell you why this Senate inquiry was conceived? The Senate inquiry, I think it's a very landmark one. I think uh, it's a culmination of a number of factors and um, uh, uh, there is a huge demand for access issues and um, community organizations and people with lived experiences, uh, they made their voice very heard through the government and uh, on the top we like professionals have been advocating for this to be recognized and looked into as well. I think the combination of factors, the need versus demand, all led to this Senate inquiry. And I believe it's one of the landmark inquiry in the space of ADHD in this, like in, in our country. And I think uh, it's something we haven't heard before. So it uh, lends a lot of validation and uh, recognition to people with lived experiences and uh, and also community organizations and the professionals who provide ADHD care. So is a reform of ADHD diagnosis and treatment processes part of a need for greater mental health and medical reform? Yes, absolutely. It needs to be aligned with a better training, education, access, availability of services. So it needs to align with all of it. And as the recommendation has highlighted, as the report has highlighted, one of the key areas, there are two two aspects of the recommendation of the report are worth noticing. One is recommendation two, which indicates there is a need to improve access in rural, regional and remote areas. And the second aspect is about involvement of the public sector. At the moment, there is a big barrier based on the cost and location. And I think we believe it's also because people don't know where to go to get right uh, like a diagnosis and treatment and uh, and accessing through like public sector will help because uh, it's available in most places and um, it's unlike private system 
where it is very expensive at the moment, it can be a big barrier for a lot of people. And again, private system is not uh, very equitably distributed across. And uh, major cities, metropolitans, they have lots of psychiatrists, but uh, regional remote areas, there are very limited supply of psychiatrists. Um, and uh, one of the other items which relevant to talking is about the telehealth, the need to review the telehealth services as well. So expanding and uh, improving access to telehealth services will also allow people to reach out more. Adding ADHD to the NDIS's lists would be one of the major recommendations. Would it put a strain on NDIS resources? So NDIS has a number of conditions already on the list, as you, as you would have seen. What we were initially, like what we were hoping is that um, ADHD becomes an identifiable condition within NDIS, but still the quality, if somebody needs to be eligible, they need to be demonstrating the degree of impairment to access, like a degree of psychosocial dysfunction to access NDIS supports. So the recommendation is a bit uh, non-specific here, actually. It says that to improve the accessibility and quality of information around the eligibility. It doesn't, uh, to me, it doesn't seem to be a very binding one in the sense that uh, recommends ADHD to be a primary condition in the list, what we call it like a list A within the NDAS. So, so still it will be like uh, tested uh, on individual basis. That's what it looks like to me. So do you believe these recommendations will be implemented? I really like this recommendation to be implemented, but uh, again, uh, it's the, the, there's, uh, there are chances that um, some of the recommendations are, will be likely implemented. But uh, having seen um, previous kind of a commission inquiry and some reports, uh, they do take a very long time. And uh, without a sense of agency and uh, commitment from the governments, we are talking about both federal and state uh, jurisdictional governments. So it's it's a big commitment. And without there is a sense of agency and uh, establishment of a body to oversee all these recommendations being implemented, I would be worried that uh, it won't happen in time. Yet there will be a delay which will again continue to affect people accessing services. Dr. Karupia Jagadishan, Chair of the RANZCP's ADHD Committee, speaking there with Stephen Samaras. Would you like to work just four days a week but still get your regular weekly pay? Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, new research indicates that if it is done so that the whole company is working the same way, then productivity can actually increase. Rowena Ditzel is a researcher doing her PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she has overseen the implementation of the four-day work week in New Zealand for Unilever and is in the process of rolling out the same reforms in Australia. I asked her to explain how it is working so far. We've been doing a lot of research over the last few years. In fact, I've conducted over 100 interviews on the four-day week. And one of the things I think that we found is that it definitely is feasible for business to deliver the same business outcomes in four days. 
So what do you do? You just work like a maniac for four days? How does it work? (laughs) Yes, and I think this is one of the things that people are really underestimating at the moment. To get your work done in less time, it actually requires that not just the individual, but everyone in the organisation actually changes how they're working. And without making change, it really is, just like you said, having to work like crazy to try and get things done. And I've got really great examples of some people who made really conscious consistent improvements to their ways of working so they were able to get their work done and others who really didn't change anything. And so as a consequence, they weren't able to actually get any time back in their week. So it really comes down to changed ways of working. So, I mean, are we really just talking about, you know, better productivity? Well, I guess you could call it better productivity, but it, it's a little bit more, I guess, sophisticated than that because it, it really requires a whole organisation thinking differently about what work they're going to do. So actually focusing on the things that are really going to make a difference for them. And then also determining how they are going to work differently as groups and individuals so that they can achieve those goals. So Productivity is a really complex concept to unravel. It's really about working differently on the right things. Many, many years ago, my father was involved in a time and motion study project. (laughs) Is this the basis of where things are coming from? Or like it's not what we're doing these days, but is that like where the starting point came for this? No, it didn't actually really come from that. The genesis of the idea was this idea that perhaps people are actually – wasting some of their time at work. I think we like to look at it. The water cooler argument. (laughs) I think we like to look at it with a slightly more positive spin, which was imagine if you gave people an incentive of you can have this extra time back, but you've got to change how you're working so that you still deliver the same business outcomes in less time. So time and motion probably a little bit more sophisticated than that because it really varies by worker. It's hard for you to look at someone who's sitting at a desk and determine their output. You know, we're not making widgets for lots of office space workers. Well, I mean, I used to come up with some of my best ideas whilst out to lunch, <laughs> but I, I couldn't really, I don't think I could, if, if I was working casually, put that down as part of my hours. So d- depending on, the, as you say, the sort of work you're doing, the really good things can come in different ways, can't they? Absolutely. And and what you just said there, having your best ideas when you're out to lunch is actually one of the benefits of the four-day week. When you actually give people more of a break from work, they actually come back to work more refreshed, more engaged, and actually are able to deliver better outcomes because of that. They've had that mental refreshment and that physical refreshment. And you don't get them saying, oh, look, my flight from uh, Cairns hasn't got me here in time. I might be another extra half day late. Uh, no. And I think, <laughs> it, it, look, it's an interesting point. When, and I think the reason why it's worked with the organisations that I've been studying is because the employees and the, um, the leaders have really acknowledged that this is something that is really valuable. And there might be times where maybe they do actually have to work a little bit more than four days, but they're willing to do that because the, the overwhelming response is it's still better than it used to be. You know, things used to sometimes drag over into the weekend for a lot of these people and now they're finding that their weekends are free and if anything it's that fifth day where they're catching up so yeah it, it, it's a really interesting give and take that we're seeing and, and so what are perhaps the, the key takeaways that you've you've got out of this research what are what are some of the things that organizations have to do 
Look, I think one of the most important things is it really needs to be an all-in approach. It's not going to work if you just do little pockets within an organisation because it requires a cultural shift that's really led from the top down. People need to be thinking differently about how they're working. They need to accept that their co-workers or their direct reports or their managers won't be in every day. And then they really need to look at the work that they're doing and make sure that they're working on the most impactful work so that they're using their time efficiently. And I just just was thinking, as you said, the different days that people might be in, the difficulty there is trying to get the meetings together where you need everybody at that time. And, and is that easy to organise for the organisation? Look, I think scheduling is certainly one of the challenges that organisations face. What we're finding with most of the um, people that we're dealing with is they are having set days where most people are working in the office so they can still schedule those meetings. But also really importantly, they've acknowledged that perhaps we don't need as many of those meetings that everybody's in. Perhaps we could have less of those. So meeting etiquette and meeting culture has been another thing where we're seeing the ability to really grab back some time. Rowena Ditzel, a researcher doing her PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and this is The Wire on the community radio network around Australia. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to China is the first visit by an Australian leader since 2016, a period in which Australia endured $20 billion worth of trade sanctions as the bilateral Australia-China relationship deteriorated. Stephen Hill asked Dr Benjamin Herskovich from ANU's School of Regulation and Global Governance whether the Xi Jinping-Albanese meeting indicated any repair of relations of Australia with its largest trading partner. The first thing to say the meeting itself is a really significant development. The last time a serving Australian Prime Minister went to China was when Barack Obama was still in the White House. So it's been a very long time between drinks. And from the point of view of the Australian national interest, it is critical to have the ability for Australian leaders to visit China and advocate for Australian interests. I would say, though, that it is a bit unclear why we've seen this very significant repair of the Australia-China relationship and the resumption of dialogue at the highest levels. I think part of the story is that the Albanese government adopted softer rhetoric on China. There's no doubt that the Albanese government has been more disciplined with its diplomacy, and that has probably appealed to the Chinese government. They like to have an Australian leader and Australian ministers who talk in a bit more of a polite way. But from the point of view of the Australian national interest, It's critical to keep in mind that China is repairing the relationship for its own very specific objectives. China was deeply, deeply concerned with indicators that the Australia-US alliance was becoming much deeper and broader. Now, China knew that some of those decisions were being driven in part by growing threat perceptions as a result of China's economic coercion campaign and the diplomatic deep freeze. This move to repair ties from Beijing is partly about trying to reduce Australia's inclination to deepen its security relationship with the United States. Beijing is trying to woo Canberra back a little bit, get Australia a bit more on side with its agenda. The other aspect of it is that China also wants very specific things out of Canberra. China wants Australia to support its bid for entry into the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, a big trade pact. 
But Beijing knew that it was never going to get Australia's support while the trade restrictions were in place. What we're experiencing is a change of tone in Chinese diplomacy. Would you say we've shifted from the, the wolf warrior diplomacy to a more ritualised flattery? We have example of the Chinese premier calling Anthony Albanese a handsome boy. Do you think that there's been a sort of shift in thinking towards Australia, the greater attention being focused on being less provocative? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The language is really striking. And I imagine this is the first time Anthony Albanese has had the experience of being described in such a way by another world leader. It is fascinating and striking to see just how much the Chinese government and the state-controlled press has ramped up the positivity about Australia. In years gone by, during the period of diplomatic troubles, the Chinese press regularly criticized Australia in the most stinging terms, being really dismissive of Australia, talking about Australia as being a troublesome, wayward child that needed to be brought into line. And then all of a sudden, with this visit, we've had this 180-degree switch in terms of China's messaging. It's the kind of thing that leads to a bit of diplomatic whiplash where it's really baffling how much the language has changed. I would say, though, that Beijing is trying to flatter Australia and get Australia back on side. But we have to keep in mind that this diplomacy, this charm offensive from Beijing, is probably surface level. It doesn't speak to genuine warmth within the Chinese system of government. Beijing still sees Canberra as a partner that they don't really trust. And they also see Australia as potentially part of a U.S.-led containment effort and a potential threat to Chinese interests. China has formed for using this kind of really positive, upbeat language and then still imposing trade restrictions and imposing a diplomatic freeze. So I don't think it indicates something deeper. It's more just flattery on the part of Beijing to get Canberra more on side. The former ambassador to China, Jeff Ravey, he makes the point that China's increasing growth it means that it's unlikely that Australia will ever return to the position pre-2016 when it had very warm relations with China. Do you think, looking forward, that there remains a lot of difficult terrain that Australia is going to have to negotiate, in particular with the, the conflict between having one great power as its trading partner and another great power as its major security provider? That's exactly right. The old world, pre-2017, of positive, sunny-side-up political ties between Australia and China and a booming trade relationship, that has gone. It's dead and buried. It's not coming back. The trade relationship still remains incredibly robust. The economic complementarities between Australia and China mean that we'll probably have a booming trade for decades to come. But the political and military and strategic relationship is incredibly fraught, and it's only likely to get tougher, in fact. We've seen the release of journalist Cheng Li. There's also uh, activist uh, Yang Hengjun. Can we expect the Chinese government to respond to Anthony Albanese's plea for him to be released? This is a tragic case. My grim assessment on this would be that I wouldn't be expecting a positive outcome in that case anytime soon. The Chinese government released Cheng Li in October. China took her as part of a hostage diplomacy campaign. It was in reaction to the plummeting bilateral relationship. They released her as a way of creating positive momentum in the lead-up to the leader-level visit. Beijing probably thinks now that they've done what they needed to do, and they don't need to release Yang Hunjun as well. And it's critically important that all Australians keep asking questions about this, and Australian journalists keep on pressing Australian ministers about this question, amping up the pressure on Beijing. Benjamin Hersovich from ANU's School of Regulation and Global Governance, speaking there with Stephen Hill. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy.
More than 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza, according to Hamas, in unconfirmed reports. There have been more than 100 attacks on health care facilities, according to the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, as a limited number of health care workers battle dire conditions and remain in Gaza. Talia Kreft has this report. Aran Jengen is an advocacy coordinator at Doctors Without Borders. During conflict, healthcare facilities, healthcare providers and medical structures absolutely have to be protected as protected spaces in the in conflict. However, we haven't seen that happen in this uh, in this in this field. Just over the weekend as I mentioned to you, our doctor witnessed a lethal attack where an ambulance was directly hit right in front of the hospital gates. Dr. Abade, our, our doctor at Al-Shifa Hospital, recounted that there were just bloody bodies everywhere and many were killed immediately while they rushed the others to the operating um, room for emergency care. This is, this is a lethal attack outside of Gaza's main and busiest hospital where our staff are working daily to provide life-saving medical care. And, and this, is, this, is, this is a small glimpse of what doctors and uh, nurses and healthcare professionals are facing in in Gaza. There are so many people that have refused to just go um, flee with their family that have stayed in northern Gaza because they want to continue working, continue working for the people there that are suffering and that can't leave. As you know, there have been calls to evacuate hospitals at very short notice. We ask the question, how can you evacuate a hospital that have hundreds of people on intensive care um, life support, where are they going to? There aren't other facilities that they can be transferred to. So these calls for evacuation by the Israeli Defense Forces is absurd because we absolutely cannot evacuate hospitals on short notice. Mr Jengen says it is critical the Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is opened to allow vital medical aid to reach injured civilians. We've still got 300 Palestinian staff inside the Gaza Strip, but we were able to take 22 of our 22 of our international aid workers to cross the ones with the foreign passport because it was just simply unsafe for them to be working in that situation. But the the main thing is for MSF, we've got a new team of international staff, including a very specialized medical team that's required for this particular type of conflict, which is you know, peak violence, trauma surgery, and we've already identified them and we are ready to enter Gaza as soon as the situation allows to support the humanitarian and medical response. But our thoughts and all our um, efforts right now are really to support our Palestinian um, local staff members who are working in the Gaza Strip right now in hospitals like the Al-Shifa Hospital that you might have heard over the weekend uh, where uh, one one of our doctors was bore witness to the to the um, the aerial strike on an on an ambulance right outside the hospital, so it's 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 imp- absolutely imperative right now that the Rafa border border crossing be opened, so that a new team of um, MSF people can go in, um, more aid can go in, so that hospitals can resupply, and at the same time, a ceasefire needs to take place, so that. All our teams can work safely. David Shoebridge is a Green Senator for New South Wales. He says the Australian government must call for a ceasefire as the civilian death toll continues to rise. We have seen a tiny trickle of trucks cross the border, more as a PR exercise um, for the United States to, to pretend that some kind of assistance is being delivered to the Palestinian people. 
Um, and that that is purely a pretense, that the hospitals have run out of anaesthetic, they'll soon run out of power, uh, food is running scarce, fresh water is hard to access, there is collective punishment against the people of Gaza, which of itself is a war crime. The United States has been complicit in that. The Australian government has been complicit in that by handing a literally a blank check to Israel to continue these atrocities and this violence and, and to pretend that 70 aid trucks over, over the course of a week is, is, is even close to a meaningful response to the humanitarian crisis is insulting. The only solution to this is a ceasefire and for the world finally to step in and demand an end to the occupation and peace with justice. Senator for New South Wales, David Shoebridge, ending that report by Talia Kreft. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.